Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, mapping meaningful connection and the language of human experience. And also, I, sh- I, should, have, I should have said welcome back to What You Will Learn and welcome to Season 7 of as course. well. Our yeah. seventh year of podcasting about to kick off in what we call Juggernaut Month. Brene Brown, she's a juggernaut. Seven no years ago, that. mate. Seven years ago, <laughs> a week. Ago seven years ago from today, there was uh, we we had, we like picked that. up the the microphone and started recording and um, here we are today on here some we are. episodes here and we a are. wonderful episode to kick it off. Uh, uh, Brené Brown, we've covered a lot of her books now, and she's a wonderful author and um, very well deserving to be in our Juggernaut Month. Yeah, that's right. This is a uh, juggernaut in terms of. Uh, Reputation. Brene is obviously a massive juggernaut, and then juggernaut in terms of physical size of book as well. It was a large, large book mm, physically. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was a, my hard copy? It just fell apart. So the quality Wait, wasn't that good. I thought no, mine's so. still pretty well intact. So I don't know if that's the book or that's you, mate. <laughs> Could be just me if uh, if you look at the data set of all my books that are just yeah, falling apart. Exactly. But enough about us, mate. So. Uh, at Brene Brown's training workshops, have you seen her do training workshops? She's on Netflix. She um, does all this sort of stuff all the time. But she always asks her p- participants, hey, uh, can you list all the emotions that you could recognize and name um, and name them as you're experiencing them? Mm-hmm. And uh, over five years of doing this, um, surveying more than 7,000 people, the average number of emotions, if you th- have a quick think of them now, but the average number that people came up with was three. Ooh. Happy, sad, and angry. Yeah, I think they're the three that I'd come up with. <laughs> yeah, I reckon I wouldn't go too much more than that. But then again, if you if you think about uh, this quote by Ludwig Wittgenstein, <laughs> he said, the limits of... <laughs> so I think the W is like a V pronunciation, we'll but that's all right. It's yeah. all right. No one, no one knows this bloke anyway. <laughs> the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Mm. So what he's saying is if if you can only name three emotions and that's where your language limits to, that's probably going to be the limit of your human experience whilst you're here trolling around on planet Earth. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like uh, if you're trying to paint a painting and you've got black, grey and brown, it's going to be a pretty average looking painting. But if you can get a bit of yellow, a bit of green, a bit of blue, go even a bit more extreme, go a bit of aqua, go a bit of uh, aubergine, uh, yeah, then you can then you can make a pretty nice painting. So Brene is saying, you know, most people are thinking happy, sad, and mad. Well, what about shame, disappointment, wonder, awe, disgust, embarrassment, despair, contentment, boredom, anxiety, stress, love, overwhelm, surprise, and all the other ones that we didn't name just then, but there's dozens more as well. Yes, there's, there's a lot in that human emotion, but if you compare that to as an example in physical experience, let's just say, uh, instead, you've got a big pain in your left shoulder and it's so severe, it's just taking your breath away. You just can't live with it. You can't work. You can't sleep. You can't engage with your life. So you rock up to the doctor's office. But when you get there, if there's all of a sudden tape on your mouth and your hands are tied behind your back. So you can't really communicate what's going on to the doctor. Maybe you try yelling through the tape. You try to free your hands. You just want to point to your shoulder, but there's no use. It's just You're just kind of sitting there just pretty helpless, hoping that someone can work out what's wrong with you. But if you can't communicate it, there's there's probably not much chance that anyone else is going to be able to understand you. Yeah, so without that ability to communicate, the doctor can't fix your problem. And in a very similar way, you can't fix your problem if you can't communicate the, the emotions that are running through your body. 
So language is our portal to meaning making in life, to connection, to healing, to learning, to self-awareness and having access to the right awareness can really open up our entire universes and you're painting a, a Picasso painting compared to a little a little three-year-old little um, <laughs> son and stick figures. Language can speed and strengthen the connections in the brain with what we're processing as our sensory information. So when we feel things, uh, we kind of just feel them at first. But if we can have the right language to be able to describe what we're feeling, it really strengthens those connections in the brain. Um, and newer research also shows that if we don't have that type of emotional language, if we're, we're blocked in how we can describe things, if we can only bucket things as sad, mad, or, or happy, then our ability to interpret all this information that's coming into our bodies, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, it's very significantly diminished. That's it. So what Brene has done with this book, she is um, using her own metaphor, not a painting metaphor here, but more of a, a geographic metaphor, like an atlas where she maps all the emotions that we have inside of our body, uh, like geographic regions. So there are certain places that we go when we're searching for connection. And in this place, there's going to be different emotions sitting there. Or for example, places we go when it's beyond us, there's going to be different emotions there. Or places we go when life is good and there's going to be different emotions lurking in that geographic region. By broadening our language and classifications of emotions beyond just happy, mad and sad, then we can better understand ourselves. And once we better understand ourselves, we can better understand others and we can better connect. The first geographic region we're going to are places we go when things are uncertain or too much. And at times, one of these places might mean that the environmental demand on us is is so much that we feel, hey, we can't control with, with what this situation is demanding things are too unpredictable, things are uncontrollable, I'm feeling overloaded. So if, if this sounds familiar to you like it is for everyone, um, this emotion that we feel is stress. Stressful situations, they cause both physiological responses in the body and also psychological reactions in our mind and in our emotions. But regardless, however strong uh, the body responds to the stress, things like increased heart rate and, and cortisol flooding your, your blood system and stuff, uh, our emotional reaction is more tied to our cognitive assessment of whether we can cope with the situation or not than how our body is reacting. So basically our body reacts. It's kind of the brain's job to work out, okay, this is a stressful situation, but you kind of your brain works out, is it something worth feeling the emotional stress about or is it something that you can handle and hence you don't need to feel that emotional stress? So this emotion is really uh, tied to how well we think we can handle situations and if you think back to the other book, we did feel the fear and do it anyway. There's three different levels of fear. And um, if you want to be able to respond to all fears, this really comes down to your ability or belief in yourself that you can handle certain situations. So, you know, that is really the, the antidote to, to this as well, this underlying fear. Yeah, Brene says that she used to think that emotions responded to the body. So the body freaks out and then your brain freaks out. But she says emotions, they really are more about your assessment of can you handle it or not. And she says that stress is is kind of like trying to get in and out of the weeds. I don't know how many times she's gone through the weeds, but it is physically exhausting to tread, trudge through the weeds. She says that daily stress can take a toll. And of course, chronic exposure to stresses can be detrimental to your health. If you're stressed all the time, every day, then these high levels of perceived stress are correlated with more rapid aging, decreased immune function, greater inflammatory processes, less sleep, and just poorer health behaviors overall. 
So some days you're trodden through the weeds and it's a bit like stress. It's a bit hard to get through this muddy weed sometime. But let's say this big um, 150-kilometer wind comes through and just blows you off your feet and takes you away into the skies. This <laughs> is when things are in overload and more like overwhelm, which is a probably a more extreme version of, of, of stress here. So it's an extreme level of this stuff. Yeah, that's right. The the Dick, Merriam-Webster dictionary says that um, overwhelmed is is completely overcome or overpowered by thought or feeling. So as you say, you, you're stressed, you're in the weeds, that cyclone comes along, all of a sudden you're overwhelmed. Yeah, that's it. So the solution here is, uh, she says mindful play is can really help you out here. So times when you just got no agenda, no doing time, this is the cure. So let's just say you're working at a restaurant and there's 35 customers there. I remember moments like this when we used to work at the Tudor Inn, mate. And at these times, there was a certain cohort of workers who were luckier than the others because they could um, – the only way to solve this was to go out for a five, ten-minute break. And if you're a smoker at the time, <laughs> you could actually do that. And the people who were smokers just had to had to deal with the big blowy wind and all that. I they, really did consider taking up smoking from – for man, you get a lot of smoke breaks, don't you? If you're oh, if you're ten a minutes an hour, so straight <laughs> up you get a fifteen percent pay rise. And when things are just that that gale is blowing, you can step into just the take igloo, take take a five ten minute break. That's right. She does say that when uh, Brene so not saying she's not saying go out and give up smoking. <laughs> take, as well, take she didn't smoking. say she didn't say take a take a smoke break. She just said take a break. She said when she was working in um, in restaurants in her in her youth that she. They had like a bit of a signal. They had a code. They would just say, look, I'm blown away. And basically what that meant was they got to drop everything and just take five minutes because there's no way you can just kind of uh, ease your way back into it. You can't just say, uh, I'm not going to take this this plate of food out or I'm not going to serve this customer. You can't just like try to cut back. You have to just take a full break, reset. Um, it was a bit of a no questions asked policy and just once you're back, you're back. Yeah, I like it. So we've got uh, stress. We've got overwhelm. Um, a different emotion that occurs when things are a bit uncertain or a bit too much is anxiety. So this is where there's an escalating loss of control, where worst case scenario thinking, imagery, and total uncertainty. So we've all been there where you got a big, a big high leverage moment coming up, you know, tomorrow or later in the week, and you've got this feeling of anxiety brewing up in your body, um, and it's something that we all have at times. Yeah, interestingly, she says that anxiety can be both a state and a trait. So uh, a trait is something long-term, something that's part of an individual's personality. Uh, it's just a, a characteristic that is theirs, it belongs to them. So, you know, you might say, I'm a confident person. That means confidence is a trait for you. Or you might say, I'm an anxious person. That means anxiety is a, is a trait for you. Uh, alternatively, it could be a state. A state is just a temporary condition where you're just experiencing that for a short period of time. That might be saying, you know, I'm feeling quite confident about this presentation that I've got coming up. That's just a, a short-term state of confidence. Or you might say, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling nervous about this job interview. That's the short-term state of anxiety. So the entire premise of this book is that language has the power to define our experiences. So how we label it is actually what you experience and defines your, what your reality is. There's no be better example than, than this. So uh, anxiety and excitement, they actually feel the same. So you've got the exact sort of emotions brewing up in the body. You know, you've got that job interview tomorrow. Uh, you could label that excitement or you could label it mm. anxiety. So what you define here is a big deal. I um I claimed this wisdom and I forget where I got it from. So when Corey was doing the um the lead role for American in Paris, the biggest moment of her, her career, she was absolutely sh packing her dax. 
up hit. the whole day when she she found out, and I gave her this wisdom, and I, <laughs> I claimed it. I'm like, you know what? This anxiety you're feeling, it's the same as excitement. Just call it excitement and go out there and go and get. It was a better pet talk than that, but but I claimed it and it worked. Yeah, nice. And you just you probably didn't even say Brene Brown once said. You just said Adam Jones once said. Adam Jones came up with this baby. How romantic. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's too good. Um, Brene says like all the uh, emotions and experiences that, that she goes through in this book, um, our anxiety and our fear, it's something we need to understand and respect. Uh, and if we can understand and respect it, maybe we can even befriend it. So you say when that those feelings start bubbling up, we need to know what it is first so we can understand it. And then eventually we might be able to say, G'day, little friend, anxiety. Uh, today you're actually excitement. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you'd say it quite like that, but yeah. Yeah. If you're on the train, maybe just keep that one yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. People are going to start getting a bit worried about you. So we're, you know, geographically, we're just hanging out in a place in the world where things are uncertain or, or too much. We're going to a, a distant or a pretty close navy here. We're getting in a plane, probably going an hour away from this, this joint. And this is the places we go when things do not go as planned. And the first one of these is uh, a disappointment. Disappointment is quite simply unmet expectations. And of course, the more significant the expectations, the more uh, significant the disappointment. So as uh, that famous uh, quote, the secret to happiness is uh, low expectations. But of course, there are going to be times when we've got high expectations. If they're not met, then we get disappointed. Yeah, so sometimes these are unexamined and unexpressed expectations and just thing doesn't, um, you didn't really think about it too much, but it just didn't happen as planned and you get this uh rush of disappointment but it can also occur the other way where you've got examined and expressed expectations where you say hey uh you know i deserve this promotion and i'm expecting that and you tell your, your mate over a beer and then a week later your, your other colleague gets the promotion and you don't <laughs> and you're left um we've all had those i had it i remember uh reading this under 15s i thought i killed it in playing footy i was i thought i was a shoo-in for the bnf and then I was like, uh, they called up third, didn't get it. I'm like, yeah, that's fine because I'm going to get first. <laughs> Second, yeah, that's fine because I'm going to get first. Yeah. And first, and I didn't get it. And then I was like, I was almost in tears. And it was really embarrassing because clearly, So not only did you think you were locked to win it, you didn't even make the top three. Make top three. Oh, mate. my gosh. Yeah, not even the coach's award. I got nothing that day. No, I don't think you won the coach's award, mate. <laughs> that's, that's, that's nothing to do with being the best player. <laughs> yeah, no, it, was, it still, still hurts. Yeah, no, definitely. Haven't got over that one. Another place related to disappointment, one of the places we go when things don't go as planned is regret. So disappointment is something where obviously we've got expectations and they're not met, so we feel disappointed. Regret takes another step further because uh, regret happens when we believe that the outcome was kind of caused by the decisions or the actions we made. So disappointment, it's kind of like, okay, you wanted something, it didn't happen, you're disappointed. Regret is like, you wanted something, then you stuff something up, and then you didn't get it. So it's your fault that you didn't get it. Oh, that's a painful emotion, isn't <laughs> it's it? Much worse. It's all on you. All the <laughs> like, you realize, hey, if I just was a bit more bold three years ago and I had a crack at that, geez, where would I be today? Um, and you know, it's a, it's a shock and emotion. It's quite a powerful one to to look with some foresight of what you're going to regret more as a decision making tool for for the moment. Yeah, interestingly, she says from all the research she's done that the things that people regret most are failings of courage. 
It's whether they wanted the courage to be kinder, to show up, to say how we feel, to set boundaries, to be good to ourselves, to say yes to something scary. Whatever it was, it was the courage where we thought, you know, I really want to do this and then you, you chickened out. They're the things that we regret the most. Which leads us to another place that we go sometimes and this is when we fall short. So we have a crack at something or we put our best selves out in the world and things don't go as well as, as we thought it would and this is where we feel uh, an emotion of shame. Yeah, shame is when you say, I am bad. It's a focus on the self, not the behavior. So not, I did something bad, but I'm bad. You know, not like, oh, I took this test and I failed the test. It's like, I'm a failure as a person. I'm so stupid. Yeah, that's it. Or, you know, you might you might be saving for home or something, and then you, you go out for a social event with the, the boys or the girls, <laughs> and um, you end up uh, at the races, the TAB, and you're blowing two grand, you get home and you've have you lost two months of savings or something, <laughs> or you're watching a porno and and then it, it you're like fuck, what was that? Um, internet porn flunking out of school. <laughs> what was the porno one? Well, yeah, porn's not a good thing to watch. Like after you feel, oh, you sh- feel, you like feel shame after- for having watched it. <laughs> You didn't after, have to explain that one. Yeah, you don't feel good after after watching a porn. I don't think. <laughs> Called an idiot in front of your client. Someone calls you an idiot in front of everyone. You're like, oh. I reckon well, I'm still stuck on this. I reckon sometimes you can. But watch no, porn. Can, yeah. You're still on porn. No, I get, I get you what you're saying. Sh- you're the zero shame on porn. <laughs> not zero. Not zero. But yeah, you get a little bit. Not a hundred either. <laughs> <laughs> but the antidote here, uh, our show is is empathy. Um, and this is where we reach out to someone else and share our shame experiences, where we felt the shame, and the other person responds with us with with empathy, then the shame dissipates. So here we really uh, need two parties. You need to have the courage and the vulnerability to go up to someone and say where you feel shame. I think that's a big one. It's it's hard to just share shame. It's probably something that you know I don't I don't know if I've ever done it to be honest. Mm. But on the other person to respond with empathy. So it takes a, a strong character from the other person as well, not to start giggling and pointing their finger at you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And almost a step before that empathy and the, the vulnerability or courage to be able to share that um, with somebody else and experience that, that antidote of empathy, you need a bit of probably a bit of self-compassion first. She says that, uh, you know, even if, you, if you're feeling these things, you kind of need to forgive yourself first um, as a first step to making your way through to being able to share that with others and then you get that full antidote of empathy. We need to be kind to ourselves before we can share our stories with someone else. Swimming's great. I know you're, you're a gun at it, Asho, compared to me. I've, I, I swim a lot, but I've, I've always fallen short here. Got a lot of shame there, so that's a place I go. But we're going to a different place now on the on the uh, on the plane, mate. It seems like you've already failed this one. This is the places we go when we compare, <laughs> and straight up, you've just compared yourself to me. So <laughs> straight up, without failed, even isn't it? without even knowing, mate, you've just committed one of the uh, the sins of the Atlas of the Heart. Well, mate, I've I've, I've learned how to articulate this part of the heart, so now I can do something about it, in full <laughs> Brene fashion. Because if you're not paying attention. <laughs> Like I was, then. <laughs> you can catch yourself racing next to the person next to you, right? So you, you, me and Ashley, going for a swim. Every time you go to that right arm stroke and your head goes up and you see Ashley going ahead of you, um, you're figuring out who's who's doing better and who's going faster. And in doing so, you're probably losing what you're trying to get out of the swim in the first place. Like for me, it might be more of a meditation or a bit of personal exercise or a bit of alone time, and you're totally out of that um, ballpark entirely. Yeah, totally. I know. I've been going down to uh, Park, the old Peninsula Recreation Aquatic Recreation Centre, and I always, you know, I always jump in the fast lane because there's plenty of very slow people. 
But then uh, sometimes in, I'll be glancing over and in the medium lane next to me, there's a bloke who's, you know, 40 years older than me. Mm. Who somehow he's got a nice, nice, uh, nice stroke and he seems to be, you know, probably matching me and sometimes even beating me and sometimes my stroke just quickens a little bit. <laughs> just <laughs> think, I don't want this old bloke to beat me here, but, uh, but that's a bad thing. We should be, as you say, we should be doing the swim for ourselves and our own things, you know, that enjoyment personally, not just to beat the old bloke who you're never going to see ever again. Now, it applies to everything, not just in the pool, uh, how you parent, like your, your kids might be acting like little shits compared to other people and oh, you're, you're comparing their uh, work, relationships, someone else's um, relationship might seem better than yours or, of course, someone rocks up in a better car than you or buys a better home than you. So uh, these are the, these are the all sorts of different places where you might find yourself checking the lane next to you. Mm. And uh, researching this comparison has really um, helped Brene understand how to deal with it and it can also help us to deal with it as well. Yeah, she says that whilst we're talking about emotions in this book, comparison itself is not an emotion, but it does drive all sorts of big feelings. It can affect our relationships with others and can affect our self-worth and how we view ourselves. More often than not, this social comparison falls outside of our awareness. It, it kind of just happens. Pe- think People are doing things around you and as you say, you just kind of glance over out of the corner of your eye to that other lane. Um, often without realizing it, but when you know that friend gets that new house, they take you for the tour. All of a sudden, you're like, you're probably at first thinking, "Oh, congrats, is a nice place," and then all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh shit, that's a nice piece of artwork. That's better than mine." Or, "Oh, I wonder how they got that couch. That's looking <laughs> a little bit better than my couch." And without even realizing it, you're all of a sudden stuck in this comparison place. Yeah, that's it. So the the goal here is to raise our awareness as much as we can to actually just recognize ourselves when we are peering over the, the, the lane next to us using that metaphor again. So comparison says be like everyone else out there but better. Yeah, and this right. is when we're peering over the neighbor's fence and we see their grass growing like a green lustrous <laughs> uh, a plant, a garden and ours is just this dirt little, dirt little patch with a bit of tumbleweed blowing around. That's right. Uh she says that, yeah, we, we want to both fit in but stand out. As you say, like everyone else but better, it's a, it's a pretty funny thing. But Brene's um, coping strategy when she goes for a swim is just, again, just to herself, not, not actually to this person. She just says, she looks at the other person next to her and says, you know, have a great swim and then she focuses on her own thing, which is, uh, it's a tough thing to do, but I think it's an important thing to do. You shouldn't be comparing yourself to others. You should be just swimming in your own lane. That's a great mantra when you feel it. Have a great swim to remember when these things pop up. So that's comparison. Um, a close neighbor is a more positive thing, but admiration and reverence. Now, this is something we feel when someone's abilities, accomplishments, or character inspires us. And it can also occur when we see something else that inspires us, like nature or art, and you just got this feeling of admiration or reverence, and you're putting someone else on a pedestal in, in a probably a good way. Yeah, this can be a positive thing. This admiration of others often leads us to wanting to improve ourselves, it doesn't necessarily make us want to be like them so it's not just saying oh this is awesome i want to do exactly what you've done but it does kind of think okay that person's doing cool stuff i kind of want to do cool stuff too so it kind of inspires you to be a better version of yourself yeah that's it now the dark version of this comparison Mm -hmm. is uh in different territory envy and jealousy so it's probably something that we use interchangeably but she distinguishes them um, pretty well. And again, through being able to articulate the emotions differently means you can handle it differently as well. So a lot of value there. Yeah, I would have definitely just figured they were the same thing. But she says that envy occurs when we want something that another person has. 
which is probably most of the time when we say I'm feeling jealous, you're actually feeling envious. You know, oh, you got that job, I'm so jealous. Oh, you got that new car, I'm so jealous. It's actually envy. You want something that they have. Mm. Whereas jealousy, she says, is when we fear losing something that we already have. So whether that's a relationship or some valued part of ourselves, that's when jealousy comes in when we think somebody else is going to take this away from us. So envy typically uh, involves two people and occurs when one person lacks something enjoyed by the other. Now, jealousy typically occurs when there's three people and occurs when one fears losing something to the other person. Mm. That sort of makes sense. I think jealousy is probably a, a big one in relationships, right? Like a clear one there. Your partner's going to flirt with some other person <laughs> and you fear losing the partner to the other one. So you're jealous there of mm. that dynamic. Yeah, that's that's actually jealousy, not what we normally say is jealousy, which is actually envy. And interestingly, they said that uh, 90% of envy can be grouped into one of three categories. Um, one is attraction, whether that's physical attractiveness, romantic attractiveness, or like social popularity. Um, the second is competence, so you know intelligence or knowledge. And the third is wealth, so financial status or lifestyle. So generally, uh, 90% of your envy is either going to be attractiveness, competence, or wealth. And a lot of the time, this envy does... Um uh, what's the word, um, fall back into some sort of hostility against the other person in, and sometimes in unconscious ways. And um, those who've been listening to the podcast for a long time would, uh, <laughs> I'm not going, what do you think I'm going to go? <laughs> but Laws of Human Nature, um, which is a phenomenal book that has a full chapter dedicated to, to envy. So if you really like this, uh, where this territory is, um, I think Greeno maps out this territory in great detail where you've got all the contour lines and everything uh, it mapped out. Nice. It's good to see you um, learning from mistakes, mate. That's good. <laughs> uh, mate, beyond envy and jealousy, because somewhat more dark potentially is resentment. Uh, actually, maybe it's not more dark. It's just a, a different shade a different shade of grey. Well, it is pretty dark, I think. I, sp- yeah. I suppose it is dark. It's a, it's a, it's a, when you feel resentful towards someone, same like envy. It's like it, it is bloody. We all have it. It is mm. not. It just don't feel good. Right? Yeah, totally. And I like this articulation she has. Yeah, resentment. She says is when somebody does something or is something that you don't want to be. That's mm. when you when you see someone doing something that you just like fundamentally hold as one of your key values, and then someone violates that. That's when that resentment kicks in. I've probably had a different interpretation here. Oh, really? So it's more not the other. Per- it's the other person's perception of you. Oh. So if you think you're a, uh, a a hotshot rising star who's very smart and then someone um, treats you without that perception of, of how you believe yourself, that's when you feel resentful of the other person. Oh, okay. I think you, you're probably right on that one. So I think, um, which is really true. So if you think about the times when you do feel resentment, it is probably because the other person has, has treated you in not the perception that you have. And you end up resenting them. Mm. So it's not something we're um, always conscious of, but being conscious of that, it, you can really see, hey, it's probably just a serious insecurity I've got that I yeah. want everyone to see me as as this. Unfortunately, not everyone sees me as the same light that I believe that I am. <laughs> Is that? It's almost like the this uh, manifestation of sour grapes. You know, you think you want to be this smart hotshot, and they're treating you like the dumb graduate. And all of a sudden, you, you hate that person because in, instead of trying to do better to impress them, you just think, oh, stuff them. <laughs> well, that's a good, um, that's a, almost a perfect analogy. I think I've had that emotion sometimes where someone of an older generation has, has looked at me as if I'm just a dumb, dumb, little, young, you know, young graduate up and coming. And then I'd end up resenting them. <laughs> yeah. So that's a perfect example. Yeah, I think so. There we go. I saved it. I saved it in the end. Uh, another one we've got here is Schadenfreude. 
Probably uh, getting um, progressively darker, you could say. <laughs> this in this is, it probably does go the going next deeper level. into the, the mountains. That's right. The next level beyond uh, envy and beyond resentment is Schadenfreude, which is a combination of two German words: Schaden, meaning harm, and Freude, meaning joy. And it means you get joy from seeing somebody else come to harm. <laughs> oh, it's, an even, it's an even sicker sort of feeling <laughs> when you're catching right. it yourself than anything. We had it. Uh, uh, we all probably over talking about COVID a bit now, but. Um, it is a good example here where Melbourne, we went through the craziest lockdown in the world and then our neighbours in Sydney, they thought, oh, we had COVID. And you're like, we're like, no, you didn't. You didn't go through the trenches like we did. But when Sydney had their big wave and got locked down, I felt great. I had a lot of joy from their harm in that sense. And it is dark and it's not a good thing, but, mate, I can't. Are you the same? Oh, mate, there's, everyone's got a bit of schadenfreude. Different things. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the COVID one didn't get to me as much, but I'm sure there's there's plenty of other things that, that trigger my schadenfreude. Um, but whilst it's, you know, it's a fun word to say and it's kind of fun to talk about, it can be a bit of a tough emotion. Like it's it's not good to be feeling good about somebody no, else's doing bad, is it? It's, it's probably <laughs> the sickest sort of thing you can think of, I think. She said it's it's basically the – it's like counter-empathy. Like our emotional reaction is incongruent with someone else's. Empathy normally is like if somebody feels something, we feel the same thing because we're empathic with them. This is like the opposite. When someone feels something, we feel the opposite. But she says there is a bit of a, a, a cure here. We can switch schadenfreude over to freudenfreude, which mm. is – you know, mixing Freuder and Freuder, which is joy and joy, meaning getting joy from somebody else's joy. Maybe easier. Well, we all have this feeling as well when someone you love does have a lot of uh, success and a lot of things that go right. Um, so, you know, as much as possible, that is a much healthier <laughs> territory to be in as much as possible. So we've gone around this uh, this atlas, this map of to a whole bunch of different areas so far. We're going to venture into a new different territory here. And the territory we're going through now is places we go when things aren't what they seem. Now, this is another one here that uh, happens a lot unconsciously. If people were conscious of it, they'd probably act very differently. And um, we'll tell you about this, more about this territory soon. But first, a story. So in 1954, the social psychologist Leon Festinger and two associates, they got um, into a doomsday cult. So a bit like the modern day, uh, what's, what's his name, your guy? Louis Theroux. A bit like the old Louis Theroux. And uh, so they got in this cult and found out what would happen after the leader's prophecy where things are going to turn to shit was actually going to be fulfilled and what happens after that. It's a phenomenal <laughs> study, man. Yeah, this, this cult that they made their way into, the leader had promised her followers that the world was going to end on December 21, 1954. Uh, she said that there was going to be a flying saucer uh, was going to come and save the people who are believers though. So the world was going to end on December 21. If you were a true believer, if you were part of this cult and believed everything that she said, then a flying source was going to pop in the day before and save you, take you somewhere else and everybody stuck on earth, they're going to get cooked. So all the people in this cult, they started selling all their belongings. <laughs> Had a pretty few awkward family dinners leading up to this uh, this time, I think, when you're trying to convince your, your family to come and sell everything, jump on the, the, the source and then... Um, but of course, is the big question is what actually happens the day after they've solved everything? <laughs> um, what are these people going to handle this situation when clearly their biggest belief in something didn't go quite as planned? Yeah, that's right. After they quit their jobs and sell their houses and festing and predicted that, okay, on the, you know, the night of December 20 and it ticks over midnight and we're into December 21 and the flying saucer never came and the world never ended, surely the people who are believers are just going to slowly you know, pull away from this cult. They're going to back out. They're going to think, oh, I've probably stuffed up here and maybe the world isn't ending. 
maybe I should just go back and find a job again. <laughs> That's what you'd think anyway. Oh, you'd think. But if you've seen um you've seen similar experiences out, that's just not how the human brain works, does it? Hey, no. Uh, we're pretty good at um, uh, digging in the trenches, digging in and um, <laughs> and standing ground, right? That's right. It actually turns out that the, the people that had made the strongest uh, commitment, the ones who had taken the biggest action to quit their job, give the finger to the boss, tell all their friends that they secretly hated them this whole time, the ones who had made the biggest commitment to this cult were the ones who actually dug their heels in and believed even more because at 4.45 a.m., when that spaceship was a no-show, it was nowhere to be seen, the leader of this cult, magically she had this new vision. She said that because of the strength of everybody's faith, they'd actually saved the world. Because they believed so strongly in this, not only did they save themselves, they saved the whole world. And in fact, you know what? Things are going to be okay, but there's some more bad shit coming around the corner. So if you stick with me, I've got a few more prophecies. <laughs> Let's see what else we can come up with. So the cult here, what they were experiencing was... Uh, Cognitive dissonance, and and this is the engine that drives this self justification, the energy that produces the need to justify all the actions and decisions, especially the wrong ones. I mean, it, it would be harder to say I sold my house, my car, um, had told my you know father in law to get effed, and he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, it's easier to say, hey, I, I was right all along, <laughs> yeah. than say, oh my. God. And just oh, I was wrong the whole time there, and t- say apologize to everyone and try and get your car back. That's right. So that dissonance is that it's that uh, mental discomfort between you know two different things: what you think is going to happen and what actually happens. There's this gap there, and what our brain does uh, is the bigger the gap, the more we're kind of um, incentivized to fill in that gap in some way. And for the ones who had the biggest gap, the ones who had made the, those biggest commitments to what seems like the wrong path. They were the ones who were the most incentivized to then come up with new stories. They say, you know, oh, actually, no, sorry, we, there must have been a – the calculation was wrong. It's actually coming in, you know, February 1956 and we better keep going and keep believing and uh, and then the source is going to come and save us. Yeah. Sounds pretty lucrative to start a cult if you've seen a few of those Netflix Oh, yeah. Um, but when we're faced with information that challenges what we believe – so this is a pretty extreme version. I think we all have different versions of this at different levels – so they're not idiots. We're probably all idiots like this in some way. But our first instinct is to make this discomfort, the irritation and the vulnerability just to go away to resolve the dissonance and get back to that feeling of certainty. And we might reject all the new information that's coming in that could help us towards whatever our goal is. But instead, we decrease its importance or avoid the information altogether and put our blinkers on. So, of course, being conscious of this is the first step to, to being able to resolve um, these feelings of dissonance and, and actually be uh, a better with whatever the information, the data you're getting from the world, being um, able to update your wo- uh, overall worldview. That's right. So that's one of the places we go when things aren't what they seem is we fill that cognitive dissonance in. Uh, another place we can go when things aren't what they seem is a bit of hopelessness and despair. She says that we need hope like we need air to live without the risk of suffocation from hopelessness and despair, to risk being crushed by the belief that there is no way out of whatever is holding us back. We need hope in order to keep us moving forward. But hope is not what most of us think it is. It's not this warm, fuzzy emotion that fills us with this huge sense of um, possibility what's coming. It's actually a way of thinking. It's a cognitive process. So hope is really made up of a, a trilogy of goals that you might have written about the future, the pathways and also the feeling of agency you've got to go after these goals. Yeah, that's right. We need, you know, realistic, achievable goals. We need a 
way to get there and also that sense of agency that we can get there. That's what really, that's what hope is. So she says that hope, it's not actually an emotion uh, in the sense that it's more, as you say, that, that process of goals, plans and agency, but hopelessness and despair, they are emotions coming out of a lack of hope. If we have hopelessness, that is an emotion. And hopelessness, it comes out of a combination of negative life events and negative thought patterns, particularly things like self-blame and mostly the perceived inability to change our circumstances. So when we lose hope, when we feel like we can't change anything, that's when hopelessness sets in. Yeah, so hopelessness can be very dark, obviously, and it's strongly and specifically re- related to uh, to suicide out there. Um, but, you know, with driving up hope, which is the uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, lucky it is a uh, quite an actionable thing, um, probably easier said than, than done here for someone who's in the darkest places of, of hopelessness. But again, the trilogy of goals, pathways and agency is, is the way out of that. Yeah, uh, our, our non-mate, Marty Seligman, who pops up in a lot of books and he's uh, about like a happiness. What, what sort of emotion would you um, define that we've got against <laughs> Massive Seligman? resentment. Massive resentment against Seligman. Well, resentment, I uh, don't know our show. Don't know, that's it, because resentment, he doesn't know who, the, you know who we are. No, it was the it was oh, the. Oh, sorry, it is resentment. You're oh, right. yeah, it's You're resentment. Right. You're right. Yeah. Sorry, because he didn't treat us with. He'd, yeah, we thought we're hotshot <laughs> superstars. We thought we were the biggest podcast in the world, and he treated us like dogs. <laughs> that's right. That's so that's full resentment, hardcore resentment on Seligman. Seligman. But I can. What's the? Uh, there is also a mild bit of admiration in there as well. Another because uh, he keeps coming up and we keep putting him in and not cutting him out, out right. of our episodes. That's right. He's got some good shit. So he says, uh, when we have these feelings of hopelessness and despair, there he calls them the three P's of how we can kind of um, morph the way we're thinking about ourselves. So one is personalization. So we can put it out there as, oh, I didn't get that promotion. The world's out to get me. The boss hates me. I'm no good. Thinking those personalized thoughts is a quick way to hopelessness. But if you can depersonalize it, if you can realize, actually, you know what? The economy is pretty tough right now. There's a hiring freeze uh, where actually people just had to take pay cuts because times are tough. Actually, it's not really about me. It's just about the situation. Then if you can depersonalize it, then that's a good way to reduce your hopelessness. Secondly is uh, permanent. So this one's a bit of a tough one because if we think that our struggle will never end and it's built into our experiences of despair and hopelessness, obviously that's bad. There's the mantra from Buddhist thought, this too will pass. And there's a lot of wisdom in that because when things, that big um, hailstorm's happening, if you do have that belief and understanding that you know things pass and things move on, then that will help you through these situations. Totally. And then the third P is pervasiveness. If we take that and extrapolate, you know, we didn't get that uh, pay rise or that promotion. If we take that and say that that's kind of about everything. And so it's, you know, I'm no good at my job. uh, I'm no good at life. I'm no good as a partner. I'm no good as a friend. I'm no good at anything. And we take that one piece of information and say that relates to everything. That's bad. If we can realize that it's actually a very specific situation just about right now, we don't extrapolate that to our whole life then we can uh, much better overcome this hopelessness. Wonderful lessons in that book and wonderful final lesson from Brene and her mum. And it is simple and clear. Don't look away. Don't look down. Don't pretend not to see hurt. Look people in the eye even when the pain is overwhelming. And when you're hurting and in pain, find the people who can look you in the eye. So it's really showing up into the world and being vulnerable 
you're going to, in this atlas of where the world is, you're probably going to explore every single territory out there and every emotion. Don't hide from it. Um, live in it as much as possible because it is what it means to be human is experiencing these emotions. Yeah, connecting with other people is really what a lot of what life is about. But our connection with others can only be as deep as our connection with ourselves. So if you can understand yourself better, if you can understand all these, I don't know how many, there was like 80 plus emotions in the book, more than the three that we started with happy, angry, and sad. If you can understand those emotions, if you can understand what triggers them, if you can understand where they come from, if you can understand the places you go when you feel those emotions, the better you can understand yourself, then of course the next step is then being able to better understand others. And once you understand others, you can have better relationships and better connections. There's going to be times where you feel sorrow and anguish, but other times when breath is love and joy. There'll be days where you're bored shitless, but other days where things are just super exciting. You get more stuff than you can do. You can have low-grade disappointment, seething anger, wonder, and confusion. But the real gift of learning language and practicing this meaningful connection with life is the ability to go anywhere that life is going to take you without the fear of getting lost. With the right map, we can find our way back to our heart and to our true self.